My boyhood home in California was located relatively close to large orchards of apricots, cherries, peaches, pears, and other delicious fruits. We also lived near fields of cucumbers, tomatoes, and a variety of vegetables. As a boy, I always looked forward to canning season. I did not like scrubbing the canning jars or working in our hot kitchen, but I did like working with my mom and dad, and I loved eating my work. <laughs> I am sure I ate more fruit than ever made it into any of our canning jars. My memories of time spent in the kitchen with mom and dad are stirred every time I see a bottle of home-canned cherries or peaches. And the basic lessons I learned about temporal self-reliance and provident living while picking and canning produce have blessed me throughout my life. Interestingly, simple and ordinary experiences often provide the most important learning opportunities we ever have. As an adult, I have reflected upon the things I observed in our kitchen during canning season. This morning, I want to discuss some of the spiritual lessons we can learn from the process by which a cucumber becomes a pickle. I invite the Holy Ghost to be with us as we consider the significance of those lessons for me and for you as we come unto Christ and are spiritually reborn. A pickle is a cucumber that has been transformed according to a specific recipe and series of steps. The first steps in the process of changing a cucumber into a pickle are preparing and cleaning. I remember many hours spent on the back porch of my home removing stems from and scrubbing dirt off of the cucumbers we had picked. My mom was very particular about the preparing and cleaning of the cucumbers. She had high standards of cleanliness, and she always inspected my work to make sure this important task was properly completed. The next steps in this process of change are immersing and saturating the cucumbers in salt brine for an extended period of time. To prepare the brine, my mom always used a recipe she learned from her mother, a recipe with special ingredients and precise procedures. Cucumbers can only become pickles if they are totally and completely immersed in the brine for the prescribed time period. The curing process gradually alters the composition of the cucumber and produces the transparent appearance and distinctive taste of a pickle. An occasional sprinkle of or dip in the brine cannot produce the necessary transformation. Rather, steady, sustained, and complete immersion is required for the desired change to occur. The final step in the process requires the sealing of the cured pickles in jars that have been sterilized and purified. The pickles are packed in canning jars covered with boiling hot brine and processed in a boiling water bath canner. All impurities must be removed from the pickles and the bottles so the finished product can be protected and preserved. As this procedure is properly followed, the pickles can be stored and enjoyed for a long period of time. To summarize, a cucumber becomes a pickle as it is prepared and cleaned 
immersed in and saturated with salt brine and sealed in a sterilized container. This procedure requires time and cannot be hurried, and none of the essential steps can be ignored or avoided. The Lord's authorized servants repeatedly teach that one of the principal purposes of our mortal existence is to be spiritually changed and transformed through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Alma declared, Marvel not that all mankind, yea, men and women, all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, must be born again, yea, born of God, changed from their carnal and fallen state to a state of righteousness, being redeemed of God, becoming His sons and daughters. And thus they become new creatures, and unless they do this, they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. We are instructed to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him, and deny ourselves of all ungodliness, to become new creatures in Christ, to put off the natural man, and to experience a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. Please note that the conversion described in these verses is mighty, not minor. A spiritual rebirth and a fundamental change of what we feel and desire, what we think and do, and what we are. Indeed, the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ entails a fundamental and permanent change in our very nature, made possible through our reliance upon the merits and mercy and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we choose to follow the Master, we choose to be changed, to be spiritually reborn. Just as a cucumber must be prepared and cleaned before it can be changed into a pickle, so you and I can be prepared with the words of faith and of good doctrine, and initially cleansed through the ordinances and covenants administered by the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. And the lesser priesthood continued, which priesthood holdeth the key of the ministering of angels and the preparatory gospel which gospel is the gospel of repentance and of baptism and the remission of sins. And, brothers and sisters, the Lord has established a high standard of cleanliness. Wherefore, teach it unto your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in His presence. Proper preparing and cleaning, then, are the first basic steps in the process of being born again. Just as a cucumber is transformed into a pickle as it is immersed in and saturated with salt brine, so you and I are born again as we are absorbed by and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we honor and observe the covenants into which we have entered as we feast upon the words of Christ, as we pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart, and as we serve God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, then, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. 
For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. <clears throat> the spiritual rebirth described in this verse typically does not occur quickly or all at once. It is an ongoing process, not a single event. Line upon line and precept upon precept, gradually and almost imperceptibly, our motives, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds become aligned with the will of God. This phase of the transformation process requires time, persistence, and patience. A cucumber only becomes a pickle through steady, sustained, and complete immersion in salt brine. Significantly, salt is the key ingredient in the recipe. Salt frequently is also used in the scriptures as a symbol of both a covenant and of a covenant people. And just as salt is essential in transforming a cucumber into a pickle, so covenants are central to our spiritual rebirth. We begin the process of being born again through exercising faith in Christ, repenting of our sins, and being baptized by immersion for the remission of sins by one having priesthood authority. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And after we come out of the waters of baptism, our souls need to be continuously immersed in and saturated with the truth and the light of the Savior's gospel. Sporadic and shallow dipping in the doctrine of Christ and partial participation in His restored Church cannot produce the spiritual transformation that enables us to walk in a newness of life. Rather, fidelity to covenants, constancy of commitment, and offering our whole soul unto God are required if we are to receive the blessings of eternity. I would that ye should come unto Christ, who is the Holy One of Israel, and partake of his salvation and the power of his redemption. Yea, come unto him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto him, and continue in fasting and praying and endure to the end, and as the Lord liveth, ye will be saved. Total immersion in and saturation with the Savior's gospel are essential steps in the process of being born again. Cured cucumbers are packed into sterilized jars and heat processed in order to remove impurities and to seal the containers from external contaminants. The boiling water bath procedure enables the pickles to be both protected and preserved over a long period of time. In a similar way, we progressively become purified and sanctified as you and I are washed in the blood of the Lamb, are born again, and receive the ordinances and honor the covenants that are administered by the authority of the Melchizedek priesthood. Nevertheless, they did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts, 
which sanctification cometh because of their yielding their hearts unto God. The word sealing in my message today does not refer exclusively to the ordinance of eternal marriage performed in the house of the Lord. Rather, I am using this particular word as explained in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the testimony of the gospel of Christ concerning them who shall come forth in the resurrection of the just. They are they who received the testimony of Jesus and believed on his name and were baptized after the manner of his burial, being buried in the water in his name, and this according to the commandment which he has given, that by keeping the commandments they might be washed and cleansed from all their sins and receive the Holy Spirit by the laying on of the hands of him who is ordained and sealed unto this power, and who overcome by faith and are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, which the Father sheds forth unto all those who are just and true. The Holy Spirit of promise is the ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. When sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, an ordinance, vow, or covenant is binding on earth and in heaven. Receiving this stamp of approval from the Holy Ghost is the result of faithfulness, integrity, and steadfastness in honoring gospel covenants in the process of time. However, this sealing can be forfeited through unrighteousness and transgression. Purifying and sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise constitute the culminating steps in the process of being born again. My beloved brothers and sisters, I pray this parable of the pickle may help us to evaluate our lives and to better understand the eternal importance of spiritual rebirth. With Alma, I speak in the energy of my soul. I say unto you that this is the order after which I am called. Yea, to preach unto my beloved brethren, yea, and every one that dwelleth in the land. Yea, to preach unto all, both old and young, both bond and free. Yea, I say unto you the aged, and also the middle-aged, and the rising generation, yea, to cry unto them that they must repent and be born again. I witness the reality and divinity of a living Savior who invites us to come unto him and be transformed. I testify his church and priesthood authority have been restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. Through faith in Christ, we can be spiritually prepared and cleansed from sin, immersed in and saturated with his gospel, and purified and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, even born again. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. President Gordon B. Hinckley said in an October 2004 press conference, I respect this building, I love this building, I honor this building, I want it preserved, 
I want the old original tabernacle, its weak joints bound together and strengthened and its natural and wonderful beauty preserved. And then he looked at me and said, Don't you do anything you shouldn't do, but whatever you do, do well and do right. With those stirring but intimidating words, a charge was extended to preserve, strengthen, and return the old, original Salt Lake Tabernacle, revitalized and ready for another period of distinguished service. Today, dear President, we present this senior citizen of a building, all attired in a fresh new finish, fitly framed together in its historical elegance, although a bit more comfortable. The presiding bishopric, along with more than 2,000 craftsmen, proudly return the old, original tabernacle, along with a 100-year warranty. <laughs> President Hinckley's request to return the old, original tabernacle became the standard for making difficult architectural and construction decisions. The phrase was used to express the essence and the objective of the project. It served as the equivalent of Captain Moroni's title of liberty in that it was, in effect, hoisted upon every tower and raised in whatsoever place was necessary. If these old walls could talk, they would join in expressing sincere appreciation to FFKR Architects, Jacobson Construction Company, and most importantly, the entire church project team, along with the many whose skills have made a complex endeavor possible. One senior team member remarked, as we counsel together, the Lord was able to give us capability beyond our own natural means. Project members felt great reverence for the beauty of the tabernacle, for its original builders, and for the quality of their work. They marveled that for more than a century, words of the Latter-day prophets, seers, and revelators have gone forth from this podium to the world. If these old walls could talk, I'm confident they would express appreciation for their new firm foundation these old walls would be delighted with their new steel belt, which holds them tall and erect. These old walls would say, thank you for scraping off 14 layers of paint and from the ceiling and then patching and applying a beautiful new coat. These old walls would express gratitude for the protection and beauty of a shiny new aluminum roof and would join with the benches in enjoying the smiles on face of patrons as they discover the slightly modified seats in a few more inches of knee room. <laughs> New facilities to better accommodate the strains of inspirational music would be welcomed and appreciated by these old walls. One can only imagine what these old walls could recall about the many sermons they carefully listened to over the years. These old walls, if they could talk, would shout, We were here! when President Joseph F. Smith rose from a prolonged illness to attend a session of General Conference in October 1918. In the opening session, with a voice filled with emotion, he said, I will not, 
I dare not attempt to enter upon the many things that are resting upon my mind this morning, and I shall postpone until some future time, the Lord be willing, my attempt to tell you some things that are in my mind and that dwell in my heart. He continued, I have not lived alone these five months. I have dwelt in the spirit of prayer, of supplication, of faith, and of determination. And I have had my communication with the Spirit of the Lord continuously. We later learned that on the day before the conference started, President Smith received a manifestation recorded as the vision of the redemption of the dead, which later became Section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If these old walls could talk, they would remind us of the bleak, dark days of the Great Depression. They would recall the April 1936 General Conference, when President Heber J. Grant announced the Church would inaugurate a Church Security Plan, later known as the Church Welfare Plan. Six months later, he explained, our primary purpose was to set up a system under which the curse of idleness would be done away with, the evils of a dull abolished, and independence, industry, thrift, and self-respect be once more established amongst our people. The aim of the Church is to help the people to help themselves. Work is to be re-enthroned as the ruling principle of the lives of our Church membership. In October 1964, by assignment of President David O. McKay, Harold B. Lee spoke about parental responsibilities. These old walls remember Elder Lee stating he would read from a 1915 letter to the Church signed by the First Presidency. But before starting, he remarked, I suppose it is something like Mark Twain said about the weather. We talk a lot about the weather, but we don't seem to do anything about it. Elder Lee then read from the 50-year-old letter, quote, We advise and urge the inauguration of a home evening throughout the Church, at which time father and mother may gather their boys and girls about them in the home and teach them the word of the Lord. And then this promise. If the saints obey this counsel, we promise that great blessings will result. Love at home and obedience to parents will increase. Faith will be developed in the hearts of the youth of Israel, and they will gain power to combat the evil influences and temptations which beset them. These old walls remember the profound silence that came over the tabernacle in 1985 when it was announced that Elder Bruce R. McConkie would address the conference. These old walls felt a deep spirit of reverence as Elder McConkie concluded his remarks with these electrifying words. And now, as pertaining to this perfect atonement, wrought by the shedding of blood of God, I testify that it took place in Gethsemane and at Golgotha. And as pertaining to Jesus Christ, I testify that he is the Son of the living God and was crucified for the sins of the world. He is our Lord, our God, and our King. 
This I know of myself, independent of any other person. I am one of his witnesses. And in the coming day I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then than I know now that he is God's almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. In 1995, President Gordon B. Hinckley said to the women of the church, with so much sophistry that is passed off as truth, with so much deception concerning the standards and values, with so much allurement and enticement to take on the slow stain of the world, we have felt to warn and forewarn. He then proceeded to read. We, the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, solemnly proclaim that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God and that the family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Children are a heritage of the Lord. Parents have a duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs, to teach them to love and to serve one another, to observe the commandments of God, and to be law-abiding citizens wherever they live. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. I'm grateful for this extraordinary building. It stands as a sacred monument to our past and a magnificent ensign of hope for the future. I testify to the divinity of our Father in Heaven and of our Savior's abundant love for each of us. We are greatly blessed to be led by a prophet of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My brothers and sisters, as I stand at the pulpit of this old but new tabernacle, I am overwhelmed with the sense of history I feel at this moment. As one foot is planted in the past and the other in the future, I give thanks for pioneer and modern-day prophets and apostles who have had and still have the vision to construct and extend into the future this remarkable building. I wish to speak of two such men of vision, Brigham Young and his successor today. Brigham Young was the second prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He led the Church for 33 years. He built this tabernacle and presided at its dedication during the October General Conference in 1875, more than 131 years ago. His other accomplishments were many and I can refer to only a few. He was a pioneer, meaning someone who opens or prepares the way for others to follow. One writer said of Brigham Young, he led a ragged and impoverished band stripped of virtually all their earthly goods into an unknown territory. 
His critics and biographers note that the man was unique among the leaders of modern history, for he alone, without any political and financial backing, established from scratch in the desert an ordered and industrious society, having no other authority than the priesthood and the spiritual strength with which he delivered his teachings. By constant exhortations and instructions, he drew his people together and inspired them in carrying out the divine mandate to build up the kingdom of God on earth. When Brigham Young first entered the Valley of the Great Salt Lake, he declared, This is the right place. He later said, God has shown me that this is the spot to locate his people, and here is where they will prosper. He will temper the elements to the good of the saints. He will rebuke the frost and the sterility of the soil, and the land shall become fruitful, and we shall build a city and a temple to the Most High God in this place. Today we can all attest to the truth of this prophecy. Truly, the desert land and the valleys of the Rocky Mountains are a fruitful and a productive land of promise and prophecy. He built temples. He started the Salt Lake Temple, which took 40 years to complete. He also started the Manti and the Logan Temples. He dedicated the St. George Temple four and one-half months before he died. He was one of America's greatest colonizers. By the time of his death, nearly 400 colonies had been established. He organized a perpetual emigrating fund to reach out to those in need, assisting those of limited means in immigrating from countries in Europe. He established universities. The University of Deseret is now known as the University of Utah. Latter-day Saints College is now known as LDS Business College. And, of course, he also established Brigham Young University. He loved the Church and its members. Brigham Young had a unique way in which he referred to the Church. God is at the helm. This is the mighty ship Zion. You stick to the ship and honor it and see that you are in favor with the ship Zion and you need not worry about anything else. He guides the ship and will bring us safely into port. All we have to care about is to take care of ourselves and see that we do right. Let us man the ship manfully, everyone standing faithfully and firmly to his post, and she will outride every storm and safely bear us to the harbor of celestial bliss." End quote. He loved the youth of the Church, as is evidenced by the experience of Heber J. Grant. Nine days after Heber's birth, his father, Jedediah M. Grant, who was second counselor to President Brigham Young, died. For the next 21 years, Brigham Young took special interest in the boy Heber J. Grant. Heber J. Grant wrote, I was almost as familiar in the homes of Brigham Young as I was in the home of my own mother. In one home, if I felt hungry, I felt as free to go in and ask for something to eat there as in my own home. I knelt down time and time again in his home in the Lion House at family prayers as a child and as a young man. He loved the prophet Joseph Smith. Of this he said, What I have received from the Lord I have received by Joseph Smith. I love his doctrine. 
I feel like shouting hallelujah all the time when I think that I ever knew Joseph Smith. How I love Brigham Young. His modern-day successor is President Gordon B. Hinckley, also a beloved and revered prophet. A beautiful painting shows President Hinckley looking forward to the future, a set of architectural drawings before him. In the background is a portrait of Brigham Young, making it appear that President Young looks over President Hinckley's shoulder. The portrait of Brigham Young shown in this painting actually hangs in President Hinckley's office, and he has often spoken of it. In a recent general conference, he said, At the close of one particularly difficult day, I looked up at the portrait of Brigham Young that hangs on my wall. I asked, Brother Brigham, what should we do? I thought I saw him smile a little, and then he seemed to say, In my day, I had problems enough of my own. Don't ask me what to do. (laughs) This is your watch. Ask the Lord whose work this really is. These two great prophets, President Brigham Young and President Gordon B. Hinckley, are linked together in their shared prophetic vision that comes from seeing the future and having the faith to bring that vision into present reality. President Hinckley, like Brigham Young, is a pioneer and a builder. He has traveled the world meeting kings, queens, and presidents. He has been interviewed by the world's media. He continues to bring the Church out of obscurity. More than 75 temples have been built in the last 12 years, and he had the inspiration to build the Majestic Conference Center. President Hinckley, like Brigham Young, spreads the gospel and values education. Church membership now approaches 13 million in 176 nations, territories, and countries. More than 53,000 missionaries circle the globe. This conference is being translated into 90 languages. He continues to support church universities and church education. More than 26,000 members now enjoy the benefits of the Perpetual Education Fund. President Hinckley, like Brigham Young, loves the youth and all members of the Church. The youth of the Church especially reach out to President Hinckley for prophetic counsel. President Hinckley loves the Prophet Joseph Smith. Several years ago he said, I worship the God of Heaven, who is my eternal Father. I worship the Lord Jesus Christ, who is my Savior and my Redeemer. I do not worship the Prophet Joseph Smith, but I reverence and love this great seer through whom the miracle of this gospel has been restored. I am now growing old, and I know that in the natural course of events before many years, I will step across the threshold to stand before my Maker and my Lord and give an accounting of my life. And I hope that I shall have the opportunity of embracing the Prophet Joseph Smith and of thanking him and of speaking of my love for him." I bear my humble witness that both President Brigham Young and President Gordon B. Hinckley are prophets who have led the Church by inspiration and revelation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
Forty-six years ago, I was called as an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve, and for the first time, I came to this pulpit. I was 37 years old. I found myself standing among the venerable and wise prophets and apostles, whose names, as the song proclaims, we all revere. I felt how keenly inadequate I was. About that time, here in the tabernacle, I had a defining experience. It gave me assurance and courage. In those days, primary conference was held here before the April conference. I came through a south door as the opening session was being sung, the opening song was being sung, by a large choir of primary children. Sister Lou S. Grosbeck of the Primary General Board was leading them. They sang, reverently, quietly, lovingly we think of thee, reverently, quietly, softly sing our melody, reverently, quietly, humbly now we pray, let thy Holy Spirit dwell in our hearts today. As the children sang quietly, the organist, who understood that excellence does not call attention to itself, did not play a solo as while they sang. He skillfully, almost invisibly, blended the young voices into a melody of inspiration, of revelation. That was the defining moment. It fixed deeply and permanently in my soul that which I most needed to sustain me in the years to follow. I felt perhaps that which Elijah the prophet had felt. He sealed the heavens against the wicked king Ahab and fled to a cave to seek the Lord. A great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a still, small voice. And it was so, the record says, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave to speak to the Lord. I felt something of what the Nephites must have felt when the Lord appeared to them. They heard a voice as if it came out of heaven, and they cast their eyes round about, for they understood not the voice which they heard. It was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear it, insomuch that no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, and it did pierce them to the very soul and cause their hearts to burn. It is this still, small voice which Elijah and the Nephites heard that the prophet Joseph Smith understood when he wrote, Thus saith the still, small voice which whispereth through and pierceth all things. In that defining moment, I understood that the still small voice is felt more than heard. If I hearken to it, I would be all right in my ministry. 
After that, I had assurance that the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, is there for everyone who will respond to the invitation to ask, to seek, and to knock. I knew I would be all right. As the years have unfolded, so it has been. I learned, too, what power there can be in music. When music is reverently presented, it can be akin to revelation. At times, I think, it cannot be separated from the voice of the Lord, the quiet, still voice of the Spirit. Worthy music of all kinds has its place, and there are an endless number of places where it can be heard. But the tabernacle on Temple Square is different from them all. For generations, the choir opened its weekly broadcast singing the words written by William W. Phelps, gently raise the sacred strain for the Sabbaths come again, that man may rest and return his thanks to God for his blessings to the blessed. More than a hundred years ago, President Wilfred Woodruff, then 91 years of age, delivered what may have been his last sermon from this pulpit. In the audience was 12-year-old LeGrand Richards. His father, George F. Richards, later ordained an apostle, brought his boys to the tabernacle to hear the brethren. LeGrand never forgot that experience. For more than 20 years, I was very close to Elder LeGrand Richards. When he was 96 years old, that message still lingered in his heart. He could not remember the words President Woodruff said, but he could never forget how he felt when they were said. On occasions, I have felt the presence of those who built and kept this tabernacle. By music and the spoken word, those who came before maintained the simplicity of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That testimony was the guiding light in their lives. Great events which shaped the destiny of the church have occurred in this tabernacle at Temple Square. Every president of the church, except Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, has been sustained in a solemn assembly in this tabernacle. And in a similar manner, the sustaining procedures repeated annually in general conference and duplicated in every stake and board and branch as required by revelation. The Lord said, It shall not be given to anyone to go forth and preach my gospel or to build up my church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority, and it's known to the church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the church. In this way, no stranger can come among us and claim to have authority and attempt to lead the church astray. Here in 1880, the Pearl of Great Price was accepted as one of the standard works of the church. Here also, two revelations were added to the Doctrine and Covenants, now known as Section 137 and 138. Section 137 records a vision given to the prophet Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple. And section 138 is a vision given to President Joseph F. Smith concerning the Savior's visit to the spirits of the dead. 
Here in 1979, after years of preparation, the LDS versions of the King James Bible was introduced to the church. The new editions of the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price were announced to the church here. In 1908, in a general conference, President Joseph F. Smith read Section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Word of Wisdom. Then he, both of his counselors, and the President of the Twelve all spoke to the same subject, the Word of Wisdom. Then a vote to accept it as binding upon the members of the Church was unanimously passed. That revelation begins. In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. It is a shield and a protection to our people, particularly our youth. It becomes part of that whole armor of God promised in the revelations to protect them from the fiery darts of the adversary. The Church and individual members of it have always been, are now, and ever will be under siege from the adversary. He will cover, even erase the still small voice through loud and dissonant music awash with lyrics that cannot be understood, or worse, by lyrics that can be understood. He will carefully lead us astray with carefully with every other temptation he could devise. Here by revelation, the Lord clarified the order of the priesthood, and this opened the doors to fulfill the commandment of the Savior to take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and to cause the Church to be established among them. Here the Book of Mormon was given the subtitle, Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Thereafter, whoever opens the book will know from the very title what is offered within. The teachings, the sermons, the music, and the feelings of the Spirit in this sacred building transfer without being diminished to the great conference center which stands nearby, where they are heard by tens of thousands translated into dozens of languages and sent to congregations across the world. Even more, that spirit enters into the homes of millions upon millions of Latter-day Saints. In the homes, parents pray for the well-being of their children, men and women, and as the Book of Mormon promised, even little children can receive the testimony of Jesus Christ and the restoration of his gospel. This tabernacle on Temple Square is a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of glory, a house of God, even his house. Those called to speak or to perform words, music, culture are obliged to present that which is worthy to seek after the praise of man, the scriptures cautions us, is to be led carefully away from the only safe path to follow in life. And the scriptures warn us plainly what will follow when we aspire to the honors of men. 
it is not so much what is heard in the sermons, but what is felt. The Holy Ghost can confirm to all who come within its influence that the messages are true, that this is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The tabernacle stands here next to the temple as an anchor and has become symbolic of the restoration. It was built by very poor and very, very ordinary people. It is now known worldwide. The Tabernacle Choir, identified by the name of this building, has been the voice of the Church for many years. May they never drift from or allow themselves to be pulled away from the central mission which has been their place for generations. For generation after generation, the choir has opened and closed each broadcast with a message of inspiration, rich in principle and anchored in the doctrine of the Restoration, beginning with gently raise the sacred strain and closing with as the dew from heaven distilling. The tabernacle stands in the world as one of the great centers of worthy music and culture. But most of all, it stands as the standard of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That simple testimony was deeply embedded and permanently in me here, in those, this building by those primary children, singing in reverent, revelatory tones. God bless this sacred building and all that transpires within its walls. How grateful we are that it has been renewed and refurbished without losing its sacred character. Elder Parley B. Pratt of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles read these words from section 121 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrines of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heavens. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. And thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. Deeply moved, Parley P. Pratt turned his thoughts to a hymn which is actually a prayer. For many years it was chosen by the choir to close its weekly broadcast. As the dew from heaven distilling gently on the grass descends and revives it, thus fulfilling what thy providence intends. Let thy doctrine, Lord, so gracious, thus descending from above, Blessed by thee, prove efficacious to fulfill thy work of love. Lord, behold this congregation. Precious promises fulfill. From thy holy habitation, let the dews of heaven distill. Let our cry come up before thee, thy sweet spirit shed around, so the people shall adore thee and confess the joyful sound. I add my testimony that Jesus is the Christ, that this is house on this sacred day of dedication in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
We are grateful to the Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they provided this morning. President Hinckley has asked that I now speak to you. Following my remarks, this session will conclude with the choir singing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Paul E. Colliker of the Seventy, and conference will be adjourned until 2 o'clock this afternoon. Recently, I was looking through some family photo albums. Cherished memories flooded my mind as I came across image after image of loved ones gathered at family outings, birthdays, reunions, anniversaries. Since these photographs were taken, some of those beloved family members have departed this life. I thought of the words of the Lord, Thou shalt live together in love insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die. I miss each one who has left our family circle. Though difficult and painful, death is an essential part of our mortal experience. We began our sojourn here by leaving our pre-mortal existence and coming to this earth. The poet Wordsworth captured that journey in his inspired Ode to immortality. He wrote, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Life moves on. Youth follows childhood, and maturity comes ever so imperceptibly. As we search and ponder the purpose and the problems of life, all of us sooner or later face the question of the length of life and of a personal, everlasting life. These questions most insistently assert themselves when loved ones leave us or when we face leaving those we love. At such times, we ponder the universal question, best phrased by Job of old, who centuries ago asked, If a man die, shall he live again? Today, as always, the skeptic's voice challenges the word of God, and each must choose to whom he will listen. Clarence Darrell, the famous lawyer and agnostic, declared, No life is of much value, and every death is but a little loss. Schopenhauer, the German philosopher and pessimist, wrote, To desire immortality is to desire the eternal perpetuation of a great mistake. Close quote. And to their words are added those of new generations, as foolish men crucify the Christ anew, for they modify His miracles, they doubt His divinity, and reject His resurrection. Robert Blatchford, in his book God and My Neighbor, attacked with vigor accepted Christian beliefs such as God, Christ, prayer, and immortality. He boldly asserted, I claim to have proved everything I set out to prove so fully and decisively that no Christian, however great or able he may be, can answer my questions 
or arguments or stake my case. He surrounded himself with a wall of skepticism. Then a surprising thing happened. His wall suddenly crumbled to dust. He was left exposed and undefended. Slowly, he began to feel his way back to the faith he had scorned and ridiculed. What had caused this profound change in his outlook? His wife died. With a broken heart, he went into the room where lay all that was mortal of her. He looked again at the face he loved so well. Coming out, he said to a friend, It is she, and yet it is not she. Everything has changed. Something that was there before is taken away. She is not the same. What can be gone if it be not the soul? Later he wrote, Death is not what some people imagine. It is only like going into another room. In that other room we shall find the dear women and men and the sweet children we have loved and lost. Against the doubting in today's world concerning Christ's divinity, we seek a point of reference, an unimpeachable source, even a testimony of eyewitnesses. Stephen, from biblical times, doomed to the cruel death of a martyr, looked up to heaven and cried, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Who can help but be convinced by the stirring testimony of Paul to the Corinthians? He declared that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. And said Paul, last of all, he was seen of me. In our dispensation, this same testimony was spoken boldly by the prophet Joseph Smith, as he and Sidney Rigdon testified. And now, after the many testimonies which have been given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. This is the knowledge that sustains. This is the truth that comforts. This is the assurance that guides those who are bowed down with grief out of the shadows and into the light. On Christmas Eve, 1997, I met a remarkable family. Each member of the family had an unshakable testimony of the truth and of the reality of the resurrection. The family consisted of a mother and father and four children, each of the children, three sons and a daughter, had been born with a rare form of muscular dystrophy, and each was handicapped. Mark, who was then 16 years old, had undergone spinal surgery in an effort to help him move about more freely. The other two boys, Christopher, age 13, and Jason, age 10, were to leave for California in a few days to undergo similar surgery. The only daughter, Shanna, was then five years old, a beautiful child. All of the children were intelligent and faith-filled, and it was obvious that their parents 
Bill and Sherry were proud of each one. We visited for a while, and the special spirit of that family filled my office and my heart. The father and I gave blessings to the two boys who were facing surgery, and then the parents asked if little Shanna could sing for me. Her father mentioned that she had diminished lung capacity, that it might be difficult for her, but that she wanted to try. To the accompaniment of a recorded cassette and in a beautiful, clear voice, never missing a note, she sang of a brighter future on a beautiful day that I dream about in a world I would love to see is a beautiful place where the sun comes out and it shines in the sky for me. On this beautiful winter's morning, if my wish could come true, somehow then the beautiful day that I dream about would be here and now. The emotions of all of us were very near the surface as she finished. The spirituality of this visit set the tone for my Christmas that year. I kept in touch with the family, and when the oldest son, Mark, turned 19, arrangements were made for him to serve a special mission at church headquarters. Eventually, the other two brothers also had an opportunity to serve such missions. Nearly a year ago, Christopher, who was then 22 years of old, years of age, succumbed to the disease with which each of the children has been afflicted. And then last September 1, I received word that little Shanna, now 14 years old, had passed away. At the funeral services, Shanna was honored by beautiful tributes. Leaning on the pulpit for support, each of her surviving brothers, Mark and Jason, shared poignant family experiences. Shanna's mother sang a lovely musical number as part of a duet. Her father and grandfather gave touching sermons. Although their hearts were broken, each bore powerful and deep-felt testimony of the reality of the resurrection and of the actuality that Shanna lives still, as does her brother Christopher, each awaiting a glorious reunion with their beloved family. When it was my time to speak, I recounted that visit the family made to my office nearly nine years earlier and spoke of the lovely song Shanna sang on that occasion. I concluded with the thought, because our Savior died at Calvary, death has no hold upon any one of us. Shanna lives whole and well and for her, that beautiful day she sang about on a special Christmas Eve in 1997, the day she dreamed about, is here and now. My brothers and sisters, we laugh, we cry, we work, we play, we love, we live, and then we die. Death is our universal heritage. All must pass its portals. Death claims the aged, the weary, and worn. It visits the youth 
in the bloom of hope and the glory of expectation, nor are little children kept beyond its grasp. In the words of the Apostle Paul, it is appointed unto man once to die, and dead we would remain, but for one man and his mission, even Jesus of Nazareth. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger, his birth fulfilled the inspired pronouncements of many prophets. He was taught from on high. He provided the life, the light, and the way. Multitudes followed him. Children adored him. The haughty rejected him. He spoke in parables. He taught by example. He lived a perfect life. Though the King of kings and Lord of lords had come, he was accorded by some the greeting given to an enemy, a traitor. There followed a mockery, which some called a trial, cries of, Crucify him! Crucify him! Fill the air! Then commenced the climb to Calvary's hill. He was ridiculed, reviled, mocked, jeered, and nailed to a cross amidst shouts of, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. His response, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. His body was placed by loving hands in a sepulcher, hewn of stone. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, along with others, came to the sepulcher. To their astonishment, the body of their Lord was gone. Luke records that two men in shining garments stood by them and said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Next week, the Christian world will celebrate the most significant event in recorded history, the simple pronouncement, He is not here, but is risen, was the first confirmation of the literal resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The empty tomb that first Easter morning brought comforting assurance and affirmative answer to Job's question, If a man dies, shall he live again? To all who have lost loved ones, we would turn Job's question to an answer. If a man die, he shall live again. We know, for we have the light of revealed truth. I am the resurrection, and the life spoke the Master. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Though tears and through tears and trials, through fears and sorrows, through the heartache and loneliness of losing loved ones, there is assurance that life is everlasting. Our Lord and Savior is the living witness that such is so. With all my heart and the fervency of my soul, 
I live up my voice and lift it up in testimony as a special witness and declare that God does live. Jesus is his son, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He is our Redeemer. He is our mediator with the Father. He it was who died on the cross to atone for our sins. He became the first fruits of the resurrection. Because he died, all shall live again. Oh, sweet the joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. May the whole world know it and live by that knowledge. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Amen.